Okay, uh, so after taking several weeks off, we're back to Ecclesiastes, uh, our study there, which we have come to understand really since we began this uh, study a number of months ago, that it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of, uh, a different genre of, of literature. It's what we might call reflective literature. Uh, it's a form of writing that is designed to cause us to, to look around, uh, to observe our lives, to, to observe what is going on around us, and to reflect on uh, the deep things of life, to, to take seriously and to think seriously about everything that we are doing uh, in our lives and why we are doing it, uh, to consider all the way down to the details of life, uh, our view of of life, our, our view of people, how we treat people, how we view our jobs and our families and our money uh, and our food, certainly how we approach God and, and whether we do that in a, in a casual, flippant way or do that in a way that, that honors Him. So Ecclesiastes sort of boils life down to the, the simple things, the, the needful things, uh, the things, as we've said, that if we don't pay attention to, we're going to get into a lot of trouble. And so it sort of, sort of calls us to think about those most important things about life. And as we pick up here in chapter 7, we once again uh, are given a lesson on perspective. Um, we all have a perspective. We, we all have a, a specific way of, uh, or a, a, a specific way of, of viewing things or a, a specific point of view in, in understanding or judging certain things or certain uh, events in our lives. We all look at certain things in a certain way, and our perspective can make uh, a huge difference. Uh, I heard about a, a shoe manufacturer who, who decided to open uh, in, the, in the Congo market in Africa, and so this, this shoe company uh, sent two salesmen to this, unde- at that time, undeveloped uh, territory in the Congo, and one salesman cabled back to his employer and said, the prospect here is nil, no one wears shoes. The other salesman reported enthusiastically, market potential terrific, everyone is barefooted. <laughs> so completely different perspectives. Uh, Coach John McKay of USC once shared an interesting viewpoint after his team had been humiliated uh, 51 to, to 0 by Notre Dame. Uh, McKay went into the locker room. He saw his players beaten, uh, dejected, uh, worn out. Uh, those football players who had uh, were certainly at that time not, a, not accustomed to being uh, beat and accustomed to, to losing. And the coach stood up on the bench and said, Men, let's keep this in perspective. There are 800 million Chinese who don't even know this game was played. <laughs> so... You know, in that moment when these players are, for them, it's, this is the end of the world. And he just got up and said, just, just to let you know, there are millions of people on the other side of the world who have no idea that we even did this today. Just trying to bring some, some perspective to those, to those men. So perspective is important. And Solomon asked this question really of his readers, what does a godly perspective look like in a fallen world? So he's, he's spent a lot of time describing our world is, is, is fallen as a, a sin-cursed world. We're living life outside of the Garden of Eden, yet this side of eternity and heaven. And 
uh, he wants us to know how to have a, a biblical or a godly perspective about, about these things. He, he desperately wants us to know. And so he does different things as he writes. On one side, he, he warns us about having or about holding to a sort of uh, pleasure-driven, uh, hedonistic, um, uh, hopeless, humanistic perspective of life. Uh, which doesn't take into consideration God at all. So it sees the frustration, it, it's, it, it sees the, the challenges of life, it sees the, and experiences the, the effects of, of sin and the curse, and yet doesn't really take into consideration that the character of God and his plan. So he's, he's warning us about not having that kind of hopeless perspective. And then on the other side, he's, he's calling us and he's, he's challenging us to see life as as an unfolding of the plan of God, uh, as an unfolding of God's, uh, of God's purposes, uh, a God who, who is loving uh, and a God is certainly sovereign, the one who is uh, the creator uh, of all things and working in our lives uh, on a moment-by-moment uh, basis. Now, the last time is we, uh, we mentioned that chapter 6 is sort of the bottom of the book, uh, it's, it's, it's the midpoint of, of the book. In fact, verse 10 of chapter 6 is the, in, the, in the Hebrew text of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's, it's the, the middle of, uh, of the Hebrew text. And when we start into chapter 7, there is a shift to the proverbial. We have a number of, of proverbial statements, proverbs. Uh, we're going to look at them, this, some of them, this, this morning. But in chapter 6, as we noted, Solomon said that prosperity or wealth or materialism or abundance may not always be a good thing. And so he tried to bring, give us a, a biblical perspective of material things, a biblical perspective of riches, um, because Solomon knows that riches and wealth can be deceiving. And so... We form conclusions sometimes about materialism and about riches and wealth and, and prosperity, and, and Solomon wants to correct some of those myths. And so that's basically what he did in chapter 6. He dispelled four myths about uh, prosperity. Uh, he made it clear that having it all doesn't mean that you'll enjoy it all. We talked about that. Just because you have things doesn't mean that you will enjoy the things that you have because the ability to enjoy what you have is also a gift from God. So that everything that you have in life is a gift, but then the ability to enjoy and properly use those things is a gift from God as well. And so he made that clear. He also uh, made the point that living a long life does not guarantee that you will grow in happiness. So just because you add days and weeks and months and years to your life does not mean that you're automatically going to be happier and happier and happier, and he gave examples of why that is true and addressed that. Uh, he also uh, addressed the issue that, that having all of your material needs doesn't mean that your greatest need is met. So you can have all of these things in your life, but that doesn't mean that you have the ultimate thing. It doesn't mean that you have satisfaction in God. And so he talked about how many people are have all of these material possessions, and yet they, they're, they're lacking the most important thing in their life, a relationship with Christ. And he mentioned or 
made the point that the only way to have lasting satisfaction is in submitting to a sovereign God. He kind of ended on that note, and he, he, it's not the first time that he's done this, but just to bring us to this point to say that you're not going to figure it all out. You're still going to have lots of questions about life and circumstances, and, and uh, there's, there's a lot of enigmas, there's a lot of questions uh, in life, but at the end of the day, we have to learn to fear God, and we have to learn to humble ourselves before uh, the truth of God's Word and to submit our lives to, to, to a sovereign God. So riches and prosperity can blind us to reality, and they certainly never satisfy our, our souls. And so Solomon argues in this chapter, chapter 6, that wealth is not the best thing for you, even though the world around us is telling us that every day, that what you really need is something else. You need one more possession. You need one more promotion. You need one more dollar and that emptiness and that frustration and that vanity that you experience will, when you get that, will go away. And so it just drives this day after day after day. So he, he deals with that. He just says, you need to have a biblical perspective about riches. But what he does in chapter 7 is he sort of, I don't want to say he argues for the opposite, but he just sort of addresses a different, uh, sort of looks at this from a different uh, angle And he argues that adversity or affliction is not always or necessarily a bad thing. Uh, That hardship is not the worst thing for you. And so he's sort of, he's looking at it, chapter 6, he's saying, listen, prosperity is not all that (laughs) that it's made out to be. Prosperity, you might, you might get caught up in this message that's being pushed and promoted in the world, which is to say that if you have more things, that's going to satisfy. And so people tend to go after that. They pursue those things. And then in this chapter, what he does, he sort of looks at it from the other side and says, you know what, not only are riches not necessarily a good thing, but adversity is not necessarily a bad thing. So again, it's about perspective. And because we often don't have a godly perspective about life, we tend to chase after materialism and we tend to run from adversity and pain, right? So he's just talking about these two, these two uh, sort of complementary truths. So God's best in life is not always what we would choose, but we need, we need God's wisdom here, right? We need to know what God says is good for us because sometimes we lose perspective. So we need to be reminded of these things. And as we look at this particular passage in chapter 7, if, if you were to look at it in, in the original language in the Hebrew, you would notice that there's a particular word that is used uh, over and over again. One is there's this, this issue of wisdom. As we walk through this passage, we'll see this, uh, this ongoing contrast between those who are foolish and those who are wise. But there's another term here, and it's the term tov or tob uh, in the Hebrew, which is a term that means, and in your translation is probably translated as good, or it's translated as better. Uh, It's a word that means pleasant, uh, agreeable, good, but when it's used in that sort of comparative sense, it means gooder (laughs) or or better or or literally more good than. And so he's setting up these things and he's saying, listen, there are some things that are better than other things. And so, and we know this, right? Good is a relative term. (laughs) When you say something is good, usually you're defining 
what you say is good because of something else, right? So depending on how bad you think things have been, that sort of determines your definition of, of what is good. So it's relative, and, and Solomon uses this term, uh, actually uses it ten times just in verses 1 down through verse 14. Once in verse 1 as an adjective that describes the subject, uh, once in verse 11, and again in verse 14 as a predicate adjective. Uh, and then the other seven uses are in this comparative way, and, and this is really the focus of, of our attention this morning. And the good that Solomon describes in this section is compared to what we perceive to be good. So the things that we perceive to be good, he's saying, actually, this other thing is better than that thing which oftentimes in our lives and in that sort of the, the monotony of life and seeing the, and experiencing the vanity of life, we say, these are the good things. And he's saying, no, actually, these are things that are better than those things that you assume are good or perceived to be good. Uh, there are eight better than statements, and we won't get through all of them uh, this morning. But as we look at them, we quickly notice that, that God and the Bible's perspective of life uh, in many ways is diametrically opposed to the perspective of, of the world. And what Solomon describes here is not, it is not a, a viewpoint that we're born with, okay? This is not a viewpoint that we sort of naturally arrive at just because we've been walking on this planet for so many years. Uh, this is God's divine truth. It's his, it's his revelation. Uh, this is His truth that does not come to us intuitively, Okay? This is a perspective that we come to know through the Word of God and through the redeeming work of Christ in the gospel and by the sanctifying work of the Spirit in, in us as believers. All that to say that you can take these things that, that if you're a believer here and you're hearing these things, you might actually, you're going to be agreeing, I guess, in your heart with many of these things. And you might think, well, this just seems to be common sense, Right? And so you go to uh, your family or you go into a situation, you're, you're talking to someone at work or in your neighborhood, and you begin to talk about these proverbial type things, and you might think that you can convince people of what's here. But I'm just telling you, if you don't have the Spirit of God in your life, you're not going to convince them of these truths. They seem to be obvious, right, because the, this experience is common to man. So you look out into the world... These things we're talking about and have been talking about for months are things that we see and experience in our lives every day and see and experience in the lives of others every day. And yet this is not something that people are going to go, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean about riches and wealth. And I know exactly what you mean about foolishness and wisdom. And then jump on board with the wisdom and the honoring God thing. If they don't have Christ in their lives, they are not going to agree with these kinds of truths and statements. So we need God to speak into these issues of our lives. So what we have here is proverbial wisdom for a better mindset, or we might even say proverbial wisdom for a biblical mindset about living life in a fallen world. Now let's look at some of these, some of these statements. If you're taking notes, uh, I think we're going to be able to get through five of these this morning. The first one is this, a good name is better than living in luxury. 
A good name is better than living in luxury. Verse 1, Solomon writes, A good name is better than a good ointment. Uh, it's actually a play on words. Um, if, if, uh, if you were, again, if you could see this in the original text, the, word, the term for name here is a word shim, and the word for ointment here is the word shimen, and so there's some, and there's, this actually happens in, in several places in this chapter where, and it just shows the, our, sort of the artistic, uh, the uh, just r- really the, the amazing, the, um, just the, the, the craft of how the writers of Scripture would put these things together in a very poetic and a very memorable way for the readers. But it's a sort of play on words, and we have this term ointment, which is more commonly translated as oil. What, what do you have? Anybody have anything other than ointment in their translation? Okay, perfume. What else? Anything else? Okay. So we've got perfume, ointment. It's, it's more commonly translated as oil, such as olive oil, um, which would have been a sign of luxury or a sign of prosperity, uh, topics that Solomon, has, we know, has touched on in the previous chapter, as we mentioned, chapter 6. It's also possible uh, that based on the context of not necessarily chapter 6 about prosperity and materialism and riches, but, but based upon the context of where he goes next in this passage, uh, in the following verses, that Solomon is referring to the oils or the ointments that were used to prepare a corpse for burial because he's going to talk about death. So the idea is it's, it, it could be a reference to, to this oil, this, this sense of, uh, of luxury and prosperity, making this tie back to the previous chapter. It also could be bleeding into what is to come and speaking about those perfumes. That's why some of them translate that, that way, these, 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 this, uh, these oils and things that were used to prepare uh, a body uh, for burial. Either way, this is the point. The point is that at, that, that at the beginning of a person's life, an individual receives a name. But throughout their lifetime, that name, that name obtains either a good reputation or a bad reputation. And that, rep, that reputation long outlasts both their material abundance, right? So that name lasts beyond any material thing that they own, and that name lasts long beyond the fragrance of their burial ointments and perfumes. Because those things that were used, right, they were used to cover up the stench of a body. But those, those good aromatic smells don't last forever, right? But a person's reputation continues on, okay? So that is to say that a good reputation endures. And we see this in Proverbs 10, verse 7, for an example. It says the memory, or you could translate that, the remembrance or the memorial of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Uh, so a good reputation endures, and a good reputation trumps any riches that you could ever own because Proverbs 22.1 says a good name is to be desired more than great wealth for favor is better than silver or gold. And we understand this, right? We understand this about names. That names live in notoriety or fame and that names capture the essence of a person's character. For example, Daniel 
mean, when you hear, <laughs> when I hear the name Daniel, right, my name, my mind and heart go back to Daniel of the Old Testament, right? Whose name, is, whose name literally means God is my judge. You talk about a man who lived his life in view of the fact the very same things, the truths that Solomon here has been hammering over and over again that one day we're going to have to stand before God and give an account, right, for everything that we've done. Daniel lived that kind of life. I mean, he lived to please God because he understood God is his judge. God is his deliverer. He was the one who, that Daniel aimed to please in every way in his life. What about Mary, Mary of Bethany, the one who anointed the Lord Jesus with uh, her expensive perfume, that the fragrance filled the house of Simon the leper. And Jesus made this statement about Mary. He said that her name would be honored throughout the world, and it is, right? We remember this event. We remember this story. What about Martin Luther? Right? We hear Martin Luther, again, our, our minds, right? We, we, we know what he stood for. Then what? Martin Luther King Jr., right? And we, and we actually take that name, Martin Luther King Jr., and we almost, we, we see the, the sort of the similarities in his life. I mean, Shane loves, done a lot of research on Martin Luther King Jr., and you see some similarities in sort of a character and purpose and conviction that were held by Martin Luther. And so even those names, we see that, we see how those names communicate and how their, their reputation has carried on way beyond their lives. But what about Charles Manson? Any of you have any children that you've named Charles Manson? I hope we don't have a Charles Manson horn or anything like that. You know, if we have any grandchildren, I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, we don't, that, it, 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 the opposite, right? I mean, we have those names that, that we immediately associate with, with honorable things, and then we think there's other names, right? Dishonorable. Stalin, okay? Don't name your, don't name, if you have a son, don't name him Stalin, okay? Don't, not even as a nickname. Okay, Judas, think about Judas, which actually means praise. Okay, it was a name that belonged to the royal tribe in Israel, but by the time that Judas Iscariot had died, he had turned that honorable name into something shameful. Yeah, that's okay, it's different, okay? (laughs) Judas, Judas, I imagine that none of you will ever name your... Uh, if you have a daughter, probably not Jezebel. i got to be careful here. I had to think about these names. I don't want to, yeah. Uh, Cain, son, you might name Cain. In, in fact, there are certain names that you would never name your child because of the association that it has with someone you know. That's not even popular. You're right. This, this not, not somebody that we would know or understand their history or character, but because you knew someone in high school that had that name and that per you're right yeah, I mean, you, when you go to name your children and you start kicking around names and your spouse might say what about this you're, no I can't do that I can't I can't <laughs> there was this kid in gym class and I just can't you know it's just just the association with it uh, there's an ancient adage that goes like this every man has three names the one that his parents gave him the one that others call him and the one that he acquires himself so he was assigned a name at birth, and then there's that name that sometimes as we grow up that we are assigned various names for different, different reasons. But then there's that name that we acquire ourselves by the way that we live our lives. 
And when a person acquires a good name, Solomon says, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. A good name endures. A good name attracts. A good name is, is influential. And even the poorest among us can have a name for integrity and trustworthiness. So let me ask you a question. What are you most known for by people who know you best? The people in your life that know you the best, what are you known for? Right? Because he's about to start talking about a funeral, okay? And, and it's that, you know, the people that knew you best, when they're sitting around uh, the next, say, the day or two after you die, and they're talking about you, <laughs> of course, most of the time, people eulogize, right? They speak well of you. But what, what are they going to say? What are they going to say? What are you known, known, most known for by people who know you best? And then how about this question? What are you most known for by people who know you least? Now, it's true that the people that know you best see the movie reel, right? They see, the, they see every, everything, right? They see you on the good days. They see you on the bad days. They see you in the morning. They see you in the evening. They see you during the week when you're tied up doing all kinds of things. They see you on Saturday and on Sunday. And so they're seeing the movie reel, movie, movie reel of your life. And we know that the people that know you the least only see the occasional snapshot, right? So the person that, say, you're, you're, with the, you're, you're at the ball field on Saturdays. And so there's people there that might only see you at the, at the ball field. <laughs> That's the only time they really see you. And so the way that you're behaving and your conversation and, and your priorities and those things that come out in conversation, they just see a brief snapshot. What we want to do here is we want to bring the video and the snapshot in line with one another, right? We want our outward life to reflect our inward life. We, we want people to know, that only see the snapshot, that when they do see that, we want them to see an accurate reflection of the person that we really are, the movie reel, right? And we want the people that see us and know us well to see consistency, right? And we don't want them to just see externals. We want them to see the, the inward, the inner man. That's important. First Peter 3, 3, and this is, of course, Peter writing to, to wives who have husbands who are disobedient to the word, but he says there, he stresses in verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden, hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. So this, the word of God is constantly pushing us to address the inner person, constantly addressing, uh, uh, challenging us to address character issues and attitudes, spiritual attitudes. So we know that a good, a good reputation goes beyond externals. And we know that a good reputation is achieved through a persevering and a reliable character. So a good name is, is better than a good ointment. And this is, that, that, that's an important perspective for us to have as we live in a fallen world. It's important to realize that in those, those uh, details of life that we're building a name, right? Everything that we're doing and the way that we're responding to things going on around us and the things that are going on within us, it's important for us to, 
to live before God and to fear him and to honor him, knowing that every decision we make, these things are influencing our, our name, having an effect on our reputation. So, again, the world says, you need this, you need that. It's focused on the external, and he's saying, no, it's a, a good name, <laughs> a good name. Will far outlast those things. The second thing that he says is that the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. So there in the second half of this verse, he says a good name is better than a good ointment and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Now, why do you think that's true? Why do you think that's true? Why does he say that the day of your death is better than the day of your birth? Any thoughts on that? Based on what he just said about reputation and a name, and then even reaching back even further into Ecclesiastes and just in general what we've said about living life in this world, do you see an advantage? Give, give, me, give me an example. I mean, why do you think that he might be saying that? Okay, yeah, we've talked about this issue of, <laughs> well, we've, well, we've talked about this, right? I mean, it, it could be, there could be a couple things going on here. One is that we've seen the hardships. We've seen how difficult life is. And so when you're on the front end, the day of your birth, you've got these things to sort of look forward to, right? You're going to experience the aggravation and the, the annoyance and, and the monotony of, of these things, Right? But I think it is sort of in line with what you're saying. And that's because if, if at death, if your life has been well lived, then your name and your reputation is sealed. In other words, you can't do anything at that point to affect it negatively. <laughs> because the life is over and the reputation is, is settled. And when a man or a woman has so lived their life as to earn a good reputation, the day of his or her death can be a time of honor, right? And, and, and as you say, sort of recognition. So a good reputation has an influence beyond its owner's lifetime. And the day of a person's death also has a lasting influence in that after his or her death, they can be held forth as an example if, if their name has warranted that. And not only that, but no matter what, a na- what the name is that a person receives at birth, his or her reputation at the time of death becomes far more significant. <laughs> so you receive this name, but again, it's about, it's about this, this name that you have sort of obtained by the way in which you have conducted your life, and, and that name, again, lasts way beyond our, our days. Uh, the third thing is in verse 2. He says, mourning is better than merriment. Uh, it is better, he says, to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. So what, what, is, this, what is this house of mourning? Well, it's really just a reference to we might say it's a reference to the home of the deceased where the family would, would gather and mourn the, the departure of their loved one. And so a person 
uh, dies and they go to the house of mourning. And this was a time in, in Jewish, uh, a, a part of Jewish, Jewish practice to, to mourn for a minimum of seven days. We have, actually have examples of people mourning in, in, you know, 20 days, 24 days, sometimes 30 days. There was a, a period of what they even called in those first those early days greater mourning, <laughs> and then later on lesser mourning. So it's as if it, it came in two different two different stages. So th- this is about going to to someone else's funeral. And let's be honest, funerals are not as fun as birthday parties. Okay, they're just not as fun. Most people would rather go to a birthday party than a funeral. Uh, yesterday, my my parents went down to uh, went down to South Georgia, uh, close to Valdosta, and um, they were celebrating the fiftieth wedding anniversary of some some friends of theirs. Sort of a, a surprise thing. So I thought about them going down there, and then they were gearing up for this, and and the excitement of seeing their friends, and then being able to celebrate you know fifty years of, of faithfulness. And, and love between this husband and this wife. And then I think about Christy Brannon, uh, whose 97-year-old father passed away on Friday. And then I get another email. And if you're on the email thing, you saw this, right? You get an email. Christy Brannon, she's headed up to Missouri because her father passed away. It seemed like right behind it, here it comes, Jim Page. Jim Page has only one sibling. She, she lived in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. And he had shared with us recently that she, um, he, he found out about her uh, being sick, through, not, not from her, through someone else, <laughs> which is hurtful, right? I mean, you know, you, 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 you want to know those things, and this was something that he had to find out through, through another individual. But I think about this contrast between my parents heading out of town yesterday to go to this celebration and Christy heading up on Friday to Missouri to see her family. And I thought Christy probably wished she was traveling to Missouri to celebrate her father's birthday, not mourn his death. But what Solomon says here is that we do a lot more sober thinking when we're at funerals, <laughs> right? I mean, birthdays are more fun, anniversary celebrations are are fun, but we do a lot more sober thinking when we're at a funeral because death causes us to think deeply about life. Seeing a casket and thinking, that's my casket. (laughs) At some point, that is me. Or realizing that one day my name is going to show up in an obituary column. They're going, to be, they're going to be getting together. The family's going to get together, and they're going to be hashing out this you know, short little piece that has so many words in it for maybe the, 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 the newspaper or something, and it's going to be, that's going to be me they're going to be talking about. Funerals and, and death have this ability to make you grow up. <laughs> uh, it, it, they have the ability, ability to make us see so many things and to have a perspective about so many things. It, it, they help us to understand the effects of the fall, to think, think once again, we are living, right? <laughs> we are living on this side of Genesis 3. Death reminds us of the brevity of life and the transitory nature of our existence. It reminds us of how our life does count, that no one lives to himself or herself, right? That our, 
our, our lives and our death do impact the lives of others. A death is something that should, should cause us to, to recommit ourselves to live in, in light of eternity and to prepare to die. And when we're confronted with it, we're not dealing anymore with side issues. I mean, all of a sudden, when, 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 you, when you're facing death or when you're thinking about or you're attending a, another person's funeral, you're, you're dealing with lasting realities. You're not thinking about trivial uh, little things in life that, 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 that pale in comparison to these uh, weightier issues. You set aside those shallow aspects of life and, and begin to deal with the facts. And what Solomon says that, is that funerals have a way of doing that. On the other hand, feasting can be deceitful, right? Because, again, it's not, it's not to say don't ever have a party, don't ever celebrate, birthdays or anniversaries just to say that you, you, there are some people that fill their lives with those kinds of celebrations and never think deeply about eternity. But funerals have a way of doing that, of driving us to think about those things, of guarding us against unrealistic living. And so Solomon says a funeral is better than a festival. Uh, one more, and we'll stop here for today. Grief is better than laughter. Sorrow, he says in verse 3, is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. This word for sorrow is it's, it can, it's a word for grief, but it also has this idea of even anger or bitter grief. Uh, it can even be used to describe provocation. For instance, you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 6, um, about Hannah. Hannah had, had, had no children, and it says there in verse 6 that, uh, Panina, this is uh, Elkanah, her husband, this is his other wife. It says of her, it calls her her rival, Hannah's rival. <laughs> and it says, her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. That's, the, that's this term that we find here in Ecclesiastes, this, this provoking. In other words, uh, it, it's as if... It's as if this other lady was trying to cause Hannah to be, to grieve. <laughs> and not just to grieve, but to become frustrated. To have grief and anger, right? Provoking her in that way. Proverbs 17.25 says this, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. So when we're talking about grief here, it's not, and, and sorrow, we're not simply talking about the kind that we experience when we lose a loved one. I think we're talking about many different forms of grief, many different forms of sorrow. We're talking about the kind of sorrow that a parent experiences when their children will not listen to their instruction and they become a grief to their mom and to their dad. We're talking about the kind of grief and sorrow that a woman experiences when she's not able to have children and there may be someone in her life that's provoking her and, and trying to cause her to be jealous and highlighting the fact that God has given something to someone else, but in, for some reason has denied her that thing that she wants, that kind of sorrow. So there's, there's lots of different forms of, of sorrow and grief, and Solomon says here that sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter. It can even, be, it can even speak of joking or even jesting or sport. 
So it's true that laughter is anything. Wait a minute, isn't laughter good? I thought laughter was a good thing. Well, it is a good thing. <laughs> it is a good thing. I mean, laughter is often good for the soul. And we know that Solomon was not some gloomy person. In fact, Solomon has been commending joy. He's been commending joy in, what, in, in the way that we eat and commending joy in the way that we deal with our uh, people and relationships in our life and delighting in our work. I, I don't think Solomon was in any way condemning a good laugh or condemning good times. But what he says here is that sorrow can do more good for the heart than laughter can. It can do more good for the heart than laughter can. A sad face can open up the heart. So he says sorrow can lead to gladness. And he says sorrow not only leads to gladness, but it can also lead to wisdom. Verse 4, the mind or the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Again, the griefs of life and the grief of death are meant to drive us to think deeply. But the reality is people will do just about anything to get their minds off of these issues. They would much rather be entertained. They would much rather keep busy laughing instead of thinking about these eternal issues. They would much rather fill their lives with noise and with activity. And sometimes when we see a person grieving... What's our tendency? Our tendency sometimes is to immediately try to cheer them up and to get their minds off of the deep things, right? I mean, we, it, sometimes we do it not even aware that that's what we're doing. As we see them grieving, we see them in sorrow, and our, and our tendency is to just rescue from that sorrow and just, just cheer them up, and yet that might, that might not be what they need. <laughs> that might not be what they need. So Solomon says, don't avoid sober reflection. Certainly don't jest and joke about death, but look death in the face and learn from it. Don't be preoccupied with death, but take it seriously. And note, Solomon doesn't say that it's better to be sad for the sake of being sad. He says, it's better to engage sadness and take to heart what it has to teach us who live. So, Think about what Solomon is saying in these few verses, and we'll come back to this next time. He's talking about what shapes you the most. What shapes you the most? (laughs) And this is what he's saying. Pain shapes you. (laughs) Suffering. Sorrow. He'll go on to say rebuke. The very things that we sometimes look at and say those are bad things. (laughs) It's about perspective, right? materialism and riches may not be all that we think that they are. They may not necessarily be a good thing. And adversity and affliction and sorrow and pain and grief and reproof may not necessarily be a bad thing and may not necessarily be an indication of God's disfavor, right? Going through those things doesn't automatically mean this is that God's disapproving of you. But God is using these things. He's using these things in your life, and Solomon wants us to get that perspective because we have lots of questions, right? There's a lot of mystery and a lot of questions about what's going on in our lives and in the lives of other people, and yet we go back to to Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time, right? There's a time for these things. There's a time for laughter, right? There's a time for sorrow. There's a time for birth. There's a time to die. All these things are in, in God's good plan. So we'll come back. We'll pick up. Um, with this uh, next verse and just continue to walk through, look at some of these other proverbial statements. 
All right, folks, thank you for your time.